How in the world is the committee supposed to investigate what caused January 6th, what failures led to January 6th, what steps need to be modified, activities need to be changed, policies, etc., without investigating their own staff member? You know, when you look at the January 6th final report and what you don't see is literally any discussion of what did or did not happen at DHS in the weeks before leading up to the day of January 6th. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Kara Ong Whaley. On this second anniversary of the January 6, 2021 attacks on the U.S. Capitol, we talk with Mark Zaid, an attorney with a practice focused on national security law, freedom of speech, constitutional claims, and government accountability. Mr. Zaid represents Sandra Garza, the partner of fallen Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, in a new lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court on January 5, 2023, against Donald J. Trump and two rioters. Mr. Zaid also represents U.S. Capitol Police, Private First Class Harry Dunn, and Sergeant Akalino Ganell. He also represented Julie Farnham, the acting U.S. Capitol Police Director for Intelligence, who warned in the intelligence assessment before the insurrection, dated January 3, 2021, bottom line, protesters plan to be armed. Enjoy our conversation. Mr. Zaid, I want to thank you so much for joining this discussion with students who are taking a course with me this semester at the University of Virginia that is focusing on the January 6th attacks, both the causes and the consequences. You have represented several whistleblowers, and I wonder if you can start our conversation by sharing why whistleblowers are so important to government accountability and transparency. Sure. And and good morning again. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, This sounds like a wonderful class. I I looked at the syllabus. uh, I would say I wish I had classes like this in school, but the subject matter, I'm I'm glad that I didn't have to have it because we didn't have something like that. I had the Challenger explosion was was our big event when I was in college back in the 80s. So much of what I do is representing whistleblowers. In addition to my law practice, I have another law practice that I help found called Whistleblower Aid which represents uh, whistleblowers pro bono for free. Uh, The the key thing to understand in the world that I live in, most of my clients are federal employees, particularly in the intelligence community, military and law enforcement. I deal, and my expertise is specifically in dealing with classified information. So whistleblower is a very generic term. And if you look it up in the different statutes and regulations that exist, It's just literally, if you, uh, it's supposed to have a reasonable good faith belief to to, uh, reveal misconduct, uh, gross mismanagement. uh, I mean, some things that you could like, you know, fit a truck through. It it could be anything in the world, which is not actually very helpful when it really comes down to it, because it creates a lot more problems than probably what it's worth. But for national security cases, for classified information, You cannot reveal classified information outside of authorized channels. That means, as a matter of law, anyone who does that is not a whistleblower. Now, that might 
not meet the sort of generic public policy uh, definition. So, for example, Ed Snowden, you know, some of you may think what he did is awesome. And, and he's a whistleblower, revealed misconduct and unlawful activity. Uh, and we can debate that. But as a matter of law, he's not a whistleblower because he revealed classified information outside of the, the system. Now, if it's unclassified, sometimes we could actually reveal it to the media and that constitutes a protected disclosure. It gets complicated because as a for federal employees and contractors with the federal government, they're subject to lots of regulations that govern their interactions with the media or even revealing unclassified information could be a, a regulatory violation and could uh, make them subject to disciplinary activity. And, and these cases are really difficult. But the notion, if you look historically for whistleblowers, you know, you can think of Karen Silkwood. She she was murdered and she revealed all these um, uh, misconduct at a nuclear power plant. Or I, I honestly don't know much of the story myself. Um, but, you know, Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers, and that's a historic case, which is very different than today's world. 50 years ago is very different than now. But, you know, he revealed all of this misconduct where the U.S. government was lying to the people versus Chelsea Manning, who has been my client. I, I helped her get her book published most recently, uh, but I don't support what she did by revealing classified information. But what she did with those disclosures and with WikiLeaks actually revealed for the most part that the U.S. government was publicly telling us what it was privately saying. Now, people may disagree with what it was publicly saying, and there's that's fine. And there were lots of things with Iraq, obviously, in Afghanistan that we're all unhappy about. Uh, but but there's a big difference as to what is it supposed to reveal? You know, misconduct, like I said, wrongdoing, violations of law, policy, directive. Uh, and on paper, uh, even though this is not what it is in practice, on paper, we have some of the strongest whistleblower laws in the world. And more importantly, and I tell this to the government all the time because it's it's annoying that they don't practice it. They advocate for whistleblowers. You know, the president of the United States, other than Donald Trump, openly would always encourage people to to be lawful whistleblowers. That's a good thing, and there's a reason for it. They just never want it to happen when it involves something they do. Thanks again for coming, Mr. Zaid. Um, my name is Eleanor Jenkins. So what makes the cases of those who have spoken out about January 6th um, different, if at all, from others you have represented? So in many ways, I'm not sure I would describe it as unique, but some of what we did uh, and some of how I handle cases is unique. So the first cases that I handled were that of Officer Dunn and Sergeant Cannell. Officer Dunn was the first one. Uh, I started representing Harry back in like February of 21. And the purpose was specifically because he was going to go on ABC television and be the first officer to publicly speak out. Now, at the same time, I was representing Julie Farnham, the, the in, acting Intel chief of the Capitol Police, but that wasn't publicly known at the time. We were doing all sorts of whistleblowing disclosures internally within the Inspector General's office of the Capitol Police and uh, later on to Congress. But uh, 
one of the things that was handled really well, and although the Capitol Police con- kind of begrudgingly cooperated at times, was that they permitted Officer Dunn and Sergeant Kinnell to publicly speak out about the day's events and their experiences with authorization. I mean, it's rare that any federal agency will allow its employees to speak to the media without unbelievable control. And I mean, you can imagine why. It's not rocket science to understand that. I have no issue with that requirement. But one of the roles that I play when I represent whistleblowers is to make sure they do everything proper. And the Capitol Police, because of the uniqueness of two years ago today, frankly found itself in a bind. They didn't even have any real policies on this because officers never speak out publicly. That's just not what happens. Um, But, you know, I think they felt that they, they needed to allow these officers to at least talk about their stories. Uh, And we set all sorts of parameters to make sure, like, you know, don't criticize leadership. Uh, You know, don't criticize members of Congress because they have to protect them still. I mean, Gunnell has now medically retired uh, because of disability. But but Officer Dunn, he's still there. And and that means he needs to the members need to feel they can trust him and not think that, oh, I'm a Republican who was trying to you know, subvert the election, he's he's going to step out of the way of the bullet, you know, instead of trying to defend. That's really important, that trust level. So we stayed away from anything as much as possible that was political. And it was difficult to navigate that at times because Harry and the others would sometimes go up on the hill. And and when they were always on the hill because that's where they worked. And they would run into members all the time. And, you know, lots of news stories and I'm sure Sandra talked about some of this stuff with with um, Brian's family, right? Not wanting to shake the hands of, of some of the leadership. Uh, and that, now, it doesn't matter what the Sicknick family did, but for my officer clients to do something like that, that that's a problem. And But it was one, thankfully, that we we avoided the entire way through. So in that sense, it was very unique and it was a great, created a great precedent, I Precedent we use in law to say that, okay, that binds everybody else. So that's probably not a good word to say here because it binds nobody, but it is a good example that we were able to do that, that I can now show to other agencies to say, hey, you know, you can trust us. We can do this right. Hi, Mr. Zaid. I'm Patrick Lambrecht. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. Now, you represented Julie Farnham, who uh, was the acting Capitol Police Director for Intelligence and had been for 72 days uh, up until January 6th. So her final intelligence assessment before the insurrection, which was dated January 3rd, 2021, stated, quote, bottom line, protesters plan to be armed. Now, Farnham's team's analysis warned that Trump supporters, quote, see January 6th as the last opportunity to overturn the results of the presidential election. Uh, the sense of desperation and disappointment may lead to more of an incentive to become violent, quote. And, quote, unlike previous post-election protests, uh, Congress itself is the target of the 6th, referring to January 6th. So my question is, based on what you know from her case, Ms. Farnham's case, 
Can you discuss why the intelligence wasn't acted upon? And what do we know about why the U.S. Capitol Police were not prepared despite Farnham's uh, analysis? Oh, excellent question. I, I'm not surprised. I wasn't surprised at all by what happened with the Capitol Police. Uh, the Capitol Police were that agency was not designed in any way, shape, or form to deal with a January 6th incident. Uh, and for those who have D.C. area experience, you kind of, you, you know, compare like the park police who enforce um, the GW Parkway versus whether they, and I respect them a great deal, but if you want to talk to an FBI agent or a Secret Service agent and you ask them about like park police and see are they the same type of cops as you? No, they're not going to look at it in the same way. Uh, and I, hopefully I didn't insult anybody who has a family member who works for the park police. Um, but, you know, they're they're kind of the, the brunt of the, the jokes in the area as far as what they do compared to some of their sister agencies. The Capitol Police Intelligence Wing, and as you mentioned, Julie had only been there for, you know, barely over two months. Same thing with her coworker who came in. The leadership that had been in there had been in there forever. And a lot of the criticism that you guys read about, uh, about, and, and especially if you read the GOP alternative report, uh, <laughs> those whistleblowers, and they were protected whistleblowers in the sense of the mechanism by which they revealed their information, but, and, and their lawyers are good friends of mine, actually, because uh, it's a small world here in DC. Uh, but they were disgruntled employees who were being fired uh, for not doing their jobs uh, because there was a lackadaisical attitude in the Capitol Police because they were not seen as the ones to do the frontline work. You know, that would be the FBI. That would be Homeland Security. That would be the Secret Service, depending on who was present on Capitol Hill. That would be you know, CIA, if it was overseas uh, information, but certainly other law enforcement agencies would take, uh, would be the leaders on that. And the intel wing of Capitol Police was, I mean, I would say as to Julie, were, you know, second, third tier. I mean, they weren't expected to do much of anything, certainly not on their own, uh, and other than what, what they did. Now, Julie, and Jack, who was the other, her colleague who came in, they were brought in specifically to revamp and sort of 21st centurize the office to, to do what was needed to create a better front line to respond to something like January 6th, or at least better prepare to coordinate about what weaponry would they have, what communications would they need to have with their other sister agencies who would actually provide more of the manpower, the you know, interaction with the military, lots of coordination. You know, we learned with 9-11 that there was such a collapse of communication between agencies, and we tried to fix it. That's one reason DHS was stood up. That and if you ever read the 9-11 the commission report, it's all about that, the walls between agencies communicating. Those walls are still there. Some, they, they were made better on, in some ways, and some ways those more clearer avenues created more problems, and it led to those walls being erected once again. So 
uh, chief son, former chief son, just had a book come out. I know, you know, he's very critical. He said he didn't know about things, but, you know, as far as I understand in the meetings I was in, communications were sent up to him. I can't tell you if he read them or not. I can't tell you, you know, if, if he understood them or whatever, but I can tell you he was on the communications and, and it was sort of a, what was the Tom Hanks film uh, with the storm? Perfect storm. I mean, mm -hmm. in many ways, it was a perfect storm of failures, of mm -hmm. just tons of failures. And it's interesting, if you read the GOP alternative report, and I know we're going to talk about the full committee report, of which I have my own concerns about or criticisms. But if you read the GOP report, it's as if it was the entire Capitol Police officer's fault and the intel wing. Like somehow if things had been done differently, they would have come to the rescue and everybody would have listened to them. I mean, that's just a joke. It's just an absolute joke. Uh, I can't even imagine somebody reasonably believes that because even if everything had worked the way it should have within the Capitol Police in the days or weeks leading up to January 6th, not much would have changed with January 6th because it still would have required the FBI, the D DHS, the National Guard, the defense, the, the active duty military, the president of the United States still would have required all those others to actually respond and, and act to come reinforce what happened at the Capitol. Hi, Mr. Zaid. I'm Isabella Sheridan. Thank you again for coming to speak with us today. Um, we now know that you're representing Sandra Garza as a plaintiff on behalf of the Sicknick estate in a lawsuit filed against former President Donald Trump, as well as two other rioters from January 6th for the wrongful death of private first class Brian Sicknick. So we saw that the lawsuit includes claims for relief for wrongful death, conspiracy to violate civil rights, common law assault against the two rioters, uh, negligence per se against all the defendants, and finally aiding and abetting common law assault, specifically against former President Trump. So we were just wondering, could you share more about your strategy for filing this suit and what you're hoping or think could be achieved through this case? Sure. So in, in large part, the case is a little bit held hostage to the previous cases that have been filed. And excuse me, my co-counsel on this case are the same lawyers who are representing Congressman Eric Swalwell in his case against Donald Trump. So this current lawsuit in many ways uh, sort of repeats, regurgitates, follows the lead of what they did previously. And uh, because we learned from that, uh, and these are also people I've known for a long time, so I've been following this lawsuit uh, as well. And that case survived what we call a motion to dismiss, you know, an effort by the defendants to dismiss the case outright. Uh, some of them were dismissed, like Rudy Giuliani. Uh, his, his words in the rally were deemed to be protected by the First Amendment. I think John Eastman as well. Uh, but President Trump's were not. And that is now up on appeal uh, to the D.C. Circuit, our interme intermediate Court of Appeals here in, in D.C., our highest level Court of Appeals for D.C., uh, and that's been briefed and argued and we're waiting on a decision. So what comes out of that case will very much dictate what happens in our case, uh, at least with President Trump, former President Trump. With the two individuals, I, it, it's really a, a, a fait accompli. Uh, you know, they were convicted of the criminal version of our civil case, 
So that trumps, no, not actually, pun intended, that that trumps anything. <laughs> so they'll be found liable. Uh, obviously, I, I have no idea if they have any money. I don't, they're going to jail. Uh, they, they're going to be sentenced at the end of the month. One guy's going to get somewhere between four to six years or something. And that's the one who actually sprayed Brian with the bear spray. And the other guy is going to get zero to six months per his plea agreement. Uh, he's the one who bought the bear spray and gave it to his colleague. Um, so uh, we have to serve the lawsuit. We'll know where they're going to be shortly enough because they'll be in jail. Uh, but I doubt they're going to have $10 million that we're going after, uh, which is an arbitrary number, quite frankly. Um, and the money is going to be donated to charity if we ever recover anything. Because uh, this is about accountability and, and truth and justice. It's not about money, even though that's what civil lawsuits, frankly, are generally about. Uh, but, you know, the, the key defendant is Trump, of course. The other two we put in there far more. Is, it's a matter of principle. And they, they frankly, they should suffer. So if they have some money, we should take some of it from them. Uh, I hope to do that with Sergeant Gunnell as well, who was injured that day. Uh, especially there's one guy, one defendant, his claim, his uh, case is still pending. Um, I'm not sure what the schedule is, probably scheduled to go to trial later this year. And he was a, a politically appointed State Department official with a security clearance. You know, it's one thing for some, you know, bar owner from Idaho to have come here on January 6th, uh, you know, who was radicalized in whatever fashion. But for me to have heard there was a security clearance cleared politically appointed State Department official at a senior level who participated physically. We're not just talking about, you know, goofing around and stuff, but actually, you know, hit him. Yeah, but we'll see. So we're basically we're going to have to wait to see what happens with the D.C. Circuit for a while, uh, other than going forward against the two criminal defendants. Hi, Mr. Zaid. I'm Gray, uh, fourth year foreign affairs major at UVA. Um, was wondering, taking a step back, what does justice and accountability for January 6th look like for the others you represented? Well, I think it's going to mean something differently to all of them, depending on what role they experienced. And this is always difficult. Like, for example, nothing we do is going to replace the pain that that Sandra and Brian's family feels. Uh, nothing's going to bring back the mobility that uh, Aquilino, uh, Aquilino Gunnell lost. Um, you know, even for those of us who just watched that day on television uh, and are stunned by it, I, I think at least to me, uh, what accountability and justice would be, would be that we understand lessons from that day and we can avoid it happening again. You know, there are, there are protests right now as we're in this class on the mall repeating the premise that it was a fraudulent election from two years ago. Now, obviously, they're not storming the Capitol. That, that's not going to happen uh, at least two years after. Um, but I, I would not put past that January 6th can happen again. Uh, and uh, so I think until we get to a point where that is no longer the case, to me, that would be the lessons learned. You know, the accountability is going to be individual. You know, the, the people who participated, you go to jail. You get prosecuted, you go to jail. That's the way our system is. Hopefully, you learn something from that. A lot of them seem to have. They certainly at least hate having been caught. 
uh, and realizing that what they did was wrong. Uh, you know, I doubt some of them that's the case, like for some of the Proud Boys, but good thing they're probably be in prison for like 20 years. So they got a, a lot of time to think about it. You know, and the leader of the Proud Boy, Proud Boys, um, you know, was a Yale Law School graduate. Gray again. Uh, you were critical of the House Democrats, especially their decision to hire David Buckley as the select committee staff staff director. You also represented Brian Murphy, a whistleblower in the Trump administration, who had claimed he had been demoted for warning his superiors that Trump that the Trump administration had deliberately withheld intelligence reports and the rising threat of domestic extremism. Can you discuss how the politics of retaliation impacted the selection of a staff director and what it implies for how the committee was set up to do and went about its investigation? Yeah, this was stunning. So I remember we, we met with the committee staff, including Dan Goldman, who is now a member of Congress. He was one of the chief lawyers on during the impeachment hearings. And uh, we met with the staff prior to Buckley being hired to help prepare for the first hearing of the committee where Dunn and Gunnell and Fanon and Hodges appeared. And I think it was just after that uh, where when Buckley got hired. And I, it actually impacted how I dealt with the committee. I let my colleague, uh, Dave Lofman, then deal with the committee much more so because I felt I was kind of conflicted out because I was not going to hesitate criticizing the committee and Buckley. And I wasn't going to let that interfere with what I was doing for uh, Gunnell and Dunn. Um, but we still wanted to obviously make sure everything, we wanted to cooperate with the committee. We believed in the committee, still believe in the committee. Uh, Buckley was not a name that was well known, certainly by the outside. I wasn't even a name that known within the inside. Uh, and it was a shock to us to hear, given this wasn't even my allegation, because the Department of Homeland Security had investigated Buckley in response to a whistleblower complaint that my client, uh, Andrew Bakai, who works with me at Whistleblower Aid, had filed when he had been a CIA IG employee under Buckley. And the DHS IG had concluded, had substantiated that Buckley and others had unlawfully retaliated against the whistleblower. Now, that was not well known. I mean, Yahoo did a story on it. You know, God knows who, who really, you know, saw that for the most part. Um, you know, we tweeted it out, sure. So, but nobody, nobody ever paid much attention to it. And the IG itself only issued a one-page summary that it wasn't even one. It was one page, but it was like a paragraph or two. And we had to sue under the Freedom of Information Act, still are, to get the entire report released because it had been classified. It was like a 32-page report that detailed everything. So when it became known that Buckley had been hired and I'm not quite sure who hired him. Uh, I think, I presume it came from Benny Thompson and whatever their connect, his connection was uh, somehow. Now, whether it was a direct connection or not, unclear. Never did hear anything about that. Uh, but I did talk to other members on the committee and made them known, aware of what, you know, this existence of this situation. And they were stunned. They had no knowledge of it. And I don't, 
I, I totally believe them because they're people I know and, and trust and respect. Um, and there's no reason why they necessarily would have been involved. But, you know, it created this huge situation that that we were advocating in the sense or promoting as a premise that how am I supposed to bring other whistleblowers to this committee knowing the staff director unlawfully retaliates against whistleblowers? I mean, that the appearance of that is just horrible. And that got some traction, right? New York Times, why ever, all the major media did stories. I don't know if television really did, but all the major print media did stories on it. No impact. You know, this is D.C. Not everything works. You try and and if it doesn't work, you just move on. Right. You, you have to work with these people afterwards. Then I'm trying to think, I think it was like two weeks later, we're floored again by the designation or detailing of Joe Mayer from DHS to the committee as its senior staff member. I mean, he's, if you look at the committee report, he's number four listed staff in the final committee report. He was detailed, so still a DHS employee. He was at one point acting general counsel, and he took over from Brian Murphy when Murphy was unlawfully retaliated against by uh, Ken Wolf as the acting DHS secretary and, and, and Cuccinelli as the acting deputy. Uh, and, and Brian got removed uh, July 31st, August 1st of, of 2020. So now this is an allegation from us. We alleged that Mayor had been part of the unlawful retaliation against Brian. Never substantiated, never, never discarded, never substantiated because there never was a final investigation. We, we, we reached a settlement with DHS for Murphy and all of the whistleblower allegations uh, were withdrawn and, and he just moved on with his life. The House Select Committee had started an, an investigation. I had during the heat of COVID uh, 18 hours of classified testimony with them and they never issued any report. So I don't have a clue what they concluded. And then the DHS IG didn't conclude anything because they didn't finish. <clears throat> so fine, that was an allegation of the whistleblowing. That, that part didn't even bother me because he was a, a bit player in, in that. What bothered me was he was in charge of DHS intelligence, the, the INA, the wing of DHS. We we're talking about what Julie was doing at Capitol Police, that was the wing at DHS that Capitol Police was supposed to be working with to help prevent January 6th. And he was in charge of that office on January 6th. How in the world is the committee supposed to investigate what caused January 6th, what failures led to January 6th, what steps need to be modified, activities need to be changed, policies, etc without investigating their own staff member. And I, and again, I reached out to the members of the committee I knew, and I'm like, do you know this? And they were like, they were floored. They had no idea. They had nothing to do with mayor being put on it. Now, typical DC, I've been here for 30 years now. So I know lots of people and, you know, very senior people within the government just have being here so long. And I started to get some behind the scenes phone calls from some very senior government officials who were asking me to please back down 
because mm-hmm. they knew Joe Mayer. They've known him for years and he's a good guy. Uh, and this is, this will be okay. And, and I, you know, I said, thank you. I appreciate that. But you know, not, <coughs> not stopping, not backing down. So everything I have learned um, from what happened was Liz Cheney's husband was the first general counsel at DHS and Joe Mayer worked with him and they were friends or are friends. Mm -hmm. And Mayer was Cheney's choice to be on the committee. And I thought for sure, finally, maybe the committee would do the right thing because the appearance of impropriety, the appearance of a conflict of interest is so apparent that you need to move him back to DHS. How, how in the world can he be on this committee, this select committee? Uh, but I guess Benny Thompson felt he needed to placate Liz Cheney too much, and, and she put her foot down, because uh, that's the only explanation that could exist as to why he still remained there. Uh, and I think, you know, when you look at the January 6th final report, and what you don't see is literally any discussion of what did or did not happen at DHS in the weeks before leading up to the day of January 6th. And the only mention of Joe Mayer is the listing of him as a staff member. And I believe one other reference that said he received uh, a uh, like a cease and desist uh, order from Congress in January uh, of 21 that said, don't destroy any documents. You know, we're going to, we're going to want to see everything because he was still there and that's it. And so as you know, I applaud the January 6th committee. I wish they had had a lot more time. I think it was a big political blunder by the GOP not to have sat uh, other members on it, uh, even though, you know, once they got past of, okay, Jordan Gates, whoever, whoever the, uh, they wanted uh, to be on it, you know, move past the ones that the Democrats objected to, but have a bunch of other allies uh, for them rather than, you know, uh, Adam and, and Cheney. Um, and that's why they issued a, a GOP report that I think, quite frankly, is, is pretty laughable as to its substantive professionalism and, and accuracy. But um, you know, this this was Washington politics with a little p uh, at its worst um, in in the fact that that mayor stayed on on the committee. Now, I do not know if that's why there's no discussion of DHS. I do not know if they ever interviewed him. I don't I mean, I haven't seen anything about that. So at some point in time and hey, maybe the Republicans are going to do it. They'll investigate the January 6th committee which, you know, frankly, is not what I want, but uh, I'm certainly interested in finding out, you know, why there were some deficiencies that uh, a lot of us did not want to see there. Now, I'm sure there were timing issues. They didn't have enough time to finish everything and put together in the report. They needed to get all this out before before the 117th Congress ceased. Yeah, I get, I get all that, but, you know, you knew that a long time in advance. And, um if we get back to what we were talking about, about what are, you know, how what will lessons be? What will accountability look like? It would have looked like what did DHS and others do wrong to prevent it from the future? And I don't have an answer to that because it's not there. 
Thank you, Mr. Zaid. My name is Leah, and our next question is just about your perspective on the select committee more broadly. Did Congress effectively use its subpoena power in the investigation, and are there alternatives to going about the investigation that may have been more impactful? Well, they certainly tried to use the subpoena power effectively. I mean, certainly one of the things it did show further is that the system needs to be modified with respect to enforcement of subpoenas. Mm -hmm. uh, there clearly needs to be a process for those who are subpoenaed to challenge them legally, but the, the, the legal system just takes too long. Uh, and, and as you saw, too many people were able to wait out the process, right? The subpoena to President Trump, former President <laughs> Trump, was, was withdrawn for obvious reasons because they were about to end and nothing was going to happen. You know, he was able to successfully drag the process out. Um, now, you know, one of the things they did well, of course, was to persuade, you know, vast majority of Republicans uh, within the administration to come and appear before it voluntarily. Um, and, and that gives a lot of credibility to it. I mean, you know, push aside Cheney and, uh, and Kinzinger, uh, for whatever the Republicans uh, far to the right want to criticize them, you know, the vast majority of people, and I represented some of the others who haven't been publicized, um, and I don't, probably their transcripts aren't going to come out because they weren't major players. They were, they were just kind of off to the periphery. Um, but, you know, uh, they were mostly Republicans because it was the administration. That's, that's who were in the political positions, obviously. Um, and, and, and we saw a really good picture uh, of everything. And a lot of concerns came out of that. And, you know, you look at, from a legal standpoint too, right? You look at the legal representation of Cassidy Hutchinson in, for the first lawyer and the conflict. I think there's going to be some ethical problems for that lawyer. Um, he was being paid by one of the Trump PACs. That's fine. I get paid by third parties all the time. The person, the individual client is my client. Doesn't matter where the money comes from. That has no substantive impact on the ethical obligation I have to the client and the strategy I implement for or on behalf of the client, where it appears very much that this Trump PAC lawyer was operating for the interests of the Trump PAC, not for Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, and, and I think we're going to learn more about that at some point in time. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I know already, I'm trying to think if it was either at the end of the one. 17th, because I'm not sure if they can introduce legislation yet um, from a from a procedural standpoint, but I know they were already talking about and it started an effort to modify the subpoena, congressional subpoena process, so that the, the delays don't happen. You know, they, they could create a fast lane, a kind of fast track process to go either like straight up to the, the Court of Appeals rather than the district court and eliminate a lot of a lot of delays. You know, the issue of, of people invoking their fifth, you know, that's, look, that's your constitutional right to do so. It, it clearly looked like it was ridiculous at time when uh, I think a bunch of them like refused to say what their age was uh, and where they lived and things like that. If Flynn and Stone did that, that's not what the fifth is meant to be because your age is not going to incriminate you, I guess, unless it's a a statutory rape allegation, uh, then your age obviously would be fa a factor, but but not not with respect to what were you doing for January 6th. 
Hi, Mr. Zed. My name is Booker Johnson. Thank you again for coming to speak with us today. So you've already started to discuss this with respect to the politics of the investigation itself, but why is it important to have a full accounting for the causes of the January 6th insurrection, including what led to it and what happened that day? Furthermore, we were also wondering what are possibilities for ongoing investigations outside of Congress and even perhaps beyond the Department of Justice investigation. You know, you, you, I'm sure you guys all know the adage, you know, uh, those who, uh, however you want to phrase it, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And I can tell you, and you'll see as you get older, how true that is. Uh, because I think I've kind of realized that 15 years is about the line where people start forgetting what happened beforehand. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, what your memory is specifically with, and, and, you know, do you remember doing this, doing that? I'm talking about from like a, an institutional bureaucratic standpoint that the government seems to, and the public seems to have forgotten what has happened previously and repeats its conduct. So in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, there were congressional hearings. I, I own some of them. I, I buy a lot of historical stuff and I found some of the volumes joint, you know, bipartisan investigations into finding out how, how did Pearl Harbor happen? You know, what was the intelligence failure? What was the military failure? Why were they doing that? To make sure there was not another Pearl Harbor <laughs> that happened again. In the aftermath of the Challenger explosion in 86, there were all sorts of investigations by NASA, by Congress, to figure out what happened you know, what was the problem with the O-rings? What was the issue with the weather? What what should what should be changed to make sure it didn't happen again? And we had the Columbia incident, which was probably a little bit related, uh, I'm sure. But but still, you know, that we learn from that by the mistakes that happened, whether inadvertent, intentional, whatever. So the key for January 6th is again, you know, to me it's a it's a wake-up call. Now I, I have worked on, since I was your age, you know, 30 something years before on issues of um, fighting against extremists, fighting, dealing with terrorism uh, cases, dealing with Holocaust denialists, uh, going after all these folks. And I remember I gave a speech back in 1994. I, do, I used to do a lot of things on the Kennedy assassination, a lot of work on the Kennedy assassination, when I was also doing this Holocaust denialist confrontation with people. And a small group of us identified that there was an overlap, that these Holocaust denialists and right-wing neo-Nazis were using the Kennedy assassination to fundraise so that they would put stories, of legitimate stories about the Kennedy assassination in their newsletters and speakers at their conferences so that the people who didn't realize what they were about would read the newsletter, would go to the conference, and then they would hear, you know, all this neo-Nazi Holocaust denialist rhetoric, you know, before and after the legitimate Kennedy conversation. Now, but back before the internet, that was, it was isolated, right? It was isolated only to what you could reach with your newsletter, which wasn't very significant. You know, what you could reach with your conference, which, you know, probably wasn't that significant. Now with the internet, it is so easy. The, the thing that scares me the most is, are these militia groups who are, who can internationally, 
not even domestically, who can now interact with one another and find like-minded individuals to stoke their interests. Because it used to be that, okay, you got three guys. I mean, it's usually guys, but they're obviously women too. But you got three people in some small town in Boise, Idaho, or wherever, and they have nobody else to talk to but the three of them, and the rest of the town thinks that they're nuts. But when you put those three who can talk to you know, four others who live only 10 miles down the road, but they didn't even know they existed previously, and now they can get together physically, but also get together online and start plotting and start talking and just start you know, ramping each of their ideas up more, we have January 6th. You know, I, I was listening, I, I posted some tweets uh, this morning about Rose uh, Rosalind Boylan, who died that day, MAGA supporter, radicalized, uh, and she's subject of all these conspiracy theories. And in a, the MAGA ultra-right are blaming Ganell and Dunn for having murdered her. And she died of some sort of amphetamine overdose, according to the medical examiner. Uh, some reports say she was stampeded to death by you know, Trump supporters, but it looks like it was something internally um, that she died of, at least according to the medical examiner. So, uh, you know, I, I posted today, her own sister and family, you know, believe that it was Trump who killed her, you know, that he was, she was radicalized by, by the ultra MAGA uh, who brought her to uh, January, the Capitol on January 6th. And if that hadn't happened, you know, she wouldn't have obviously died. Um, and right now with the divisiveness in our country, I, I don't, I don't see this changing yet. Uh, I mean, you guys experienced it firsthand, if, you know, obviously uh, a few years ago and uh, friends of mine had children, you know, college students who were at UVA in, in, in the crowd that day. I mean, I never would have thought that to have happened in Charlottesville. That would have been if you, places in Virginia. Yeah, I could have seen that rally in quite a number of places in Virginia. I would never have picked Charlottesville. Um, we are so incredibly grateful and lucky to have heard from you today. Um, you have contributed invaluably um, to our understanding and learning. So thank you so very much. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Uh, look, keep up the good work. You know, the, the future of the country is in, in your hands.